Welcome to the Public Philosophy Series for Living Philosophy, which explores with academic guests philosophical ideas that matter to our everyday life. The Public Philosophy episodes are distinguishable from our regular episodes by the bespoke thumbnail artwork provided by Datura Studios. As always, if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed our past episodes, please take the time to rate and review Living Philosophy wherever you are streaming content. I'm your host, Dr. Todd May. What does it mean to be lost in translation? At one level, we've all experienced those moments when what we know in one language simply cannot be translated into another. There are trivial instances, such as cultural forms of understatement and irony, or the so-called backhanded compliment for which British culture is famous. That is a nice shirt you're wearing, a friend might say, and continues to remark, the pattern really suits taller people, knowing that you're not tall. Then there are the more profound instances of translation gaps where the way one natural language articulates and represents something fundamental about human experience is simply lost on or inexplicable to another. For instance, have you ever thought about our relation to the future? Isn't it obvious that we think about the future, what we will do or what might happen through language? Well, interestingly, there are languages that are described as present tensed where what is lacking is a way of speaking about what one will do. The subject of the sentence, in other words, does not express what he or she will do. Instead, the emphasis is on an indexical reference to a specific time. So instead of, I will see you tomorrow, as we would say in English, a present tense language would emphasize the indexical tomorrow and thus say, tomorrow, I see you. A few present tense languages include Sicilian, which is not a dialect of Italian, and German, and Finnish. So what's the big deal? Well, as English speakers, we may be missing a lot more than meets the ear. An article from 2018 in a popular academic journal called The Conversation points out that often involved in languages is an entire worldview or Weltanschung. And in the case of present tense languages, its emphasis on being present correlates with more environmentally responsible behavior. Here's a juicy quote from the article. According to our estimates, a change from a present to a future tense language results in a 20% decrease in an individual's propensity to help safeguard the environment. What's more, speakers of future tense languages are 24% less willing to pay higher taxes to fund environmental policies. So there seems to be something between the way in which present tense language foregrounds our human sense of being present along with being more responsible to one's present surroundings. It's mind-boggling and provocative. And to be lost in translation is not only to lose what may be the original kernel of truth to a language, the cultures native to that language, and the cultural worldview, but it is also to be lost in understanding what in fact we, as those trying to interpret another language, are missing. How can we make sense of that which is mostly, if not totally, alien and unfamiliar. The ramifications of this predicament can be enormous, especially when looking at political conflicts and social values on what matters, where being lost in translation can have the gravest of consequences. Perhaps philosophy can help us gain a clearer understanding on translation and how we can better cope with being lost with others. Our guest for this episode is Lisa Foran assistant professor at the University of College Dublin in Ireland. 
Lisa researches in post-Kantian European philosophy in areas with which our regular podcast listeners will be somewhat familiar, that is, phenomenology and hermeneutics. Lisa has a special interest in the relation between translation and ethical relations. She has published widely on the philosophy of translation, and she has a book entitled Derda, the Subject and the Other, Surviving, Translating, and the Impossible with Springer Press. Lisa, welcome to Living Philosophy. Hi, Todd. It's great to be here. Translation is not a major field of philosophy. Was the topic something that struck you in your everyday life as being philosophical, or did you come onto the topic in the course of your research and writing? I'm going to come back to the idea that translation is not a major topic in philosophy. But how I came to translation and, and the philosophy of translation was through the experience of working as a translator. I spent some time living in Barcelona for, for a number of years where I began by teaching English and then moved on to doing some freelance translating work. And I found myself going back to a number of texts that I had come across in my undergraduate degree and decided to do a master's in translation studies with the naive uh, view that I would get some answers and I would find out if my translations were right or wrong. And of course, I did my master's with this very practical ambition, and I just couldn't get away from philosophy and, and the philosophy of translation, because of course, there are no easy answers, and you never really know how good your translation is. You might have a sense of it, but it's impossible to get a right or wrong translation in the way that I was hoping. And so from there, I turned to a, a PhD, which was focused on the philosophy of translation, and particularly in the work of post-phenomenological thinkers like Derrida, Levinas, Heidegger, Ricoeur. So that's how I came to it. Almost, I was almost dragged to it by, <laughs> by a different career path that I was on. But going back to that idea that translation is not a focus in philosophy, I think it's true in the sense that, I think it's changing slightly now, but it is true that until relatively recently, it's not an area that philosophy has focused on. And yet, if you go back through the history of philosophy, many, many thinkers will have something to say on translation. And sometimes that will be quite explicit. So they'll, they'll say what translation is, or it will be an implicit philosophy of translation, because it's so much, as you know, so much of the history of philosophy is concerned with the language and how we construct meaning or how we understand meaning. And those kind of theories will inevitably have an implied theory of translation. So part of what I like to do is to dig out uh, some of those ideas of translations that are lying about in the work of quite a number of thinkers. There's a lot of slipperiness to language. I don't know if you can recall any philosophers prior to post-phenomenology who might comment on how we tend to take language for granted in some way. Constantine Sandus, who's a former guest on this podcast, uh, talks about, or just wrote an article I, I saw recently. I didn't have the chance to read the whole article the whole way through, and it's a popular article on how analytic philosophy, which is a particular, uh, for audience members who don't know, is a particular tradition of philosophy in the West, has a language problem insofar as it doesn't really understand what it's missing 
because it takes the English language for granted in terms of what it's trying to get at, to conceptualize, to problem solve, and these kinds of things. And then on the other hand, he talks about the way uh, in the podcast, he talks about the way in which we just think if things are articulated in language, it just makes things clear because we are articulating and expressing whatever it might be, contents of our mind. We talked about the problem of, of understanding the mind is having contents and things like this. But we think that once we bring things to language, it makes things easier. And of course, you raise a question or the problem because that's not normally the case. When we say something in language, we think it's clear, but then there's all these opacities to it, or there's different ways that of, of interpreting what someone has said or written. Can you think of any interesting, I don't know, anecdotes from the history of philosophy where a philosopher has, has come onto this and thought it's a, a great insight or actually has been victim to it in the sense of thinking that what he or she was saying was clear and then it becoming a problem much later on. What actually comes to mind is Descartes. And at the time that, that Descartes is writing, most people are writing their major philosophical treaties in Latin. And Descartes writes a text called The Discourse on Method in, uh, in French. And it's this big moment where he says, you know, I'm writing this book in French for the French uh, subjects and so on. And it's a very interesting thing to see philosophy shift from an, uh, what was considered a sort of academic elite language, the language also, of course, of the church, of the Christian church, to move into a vernacular language. But one of the thinkers that I work a lot on, uh, Jacques Derrida, who's a 20th century Algerian French thinker, has a wonderful commentary on this Descartes text where he says what's very strange about it is that it's presented as a French text, but actually it looks much closer to a French translation of a previously written Latin text. I think there is something very interesting in that, in the language that philosophers choose to write in, at least those who have a choice, who have a choice, which obviously is not all philosophers. So Descartes in that text, he says, if I write in French, is the language of the people and not the language of my colleagues or of scholars. It is so that I might reach more people with my discourse on method. But when the text eventually becomes published in Latin, that phrase is absent. So yeah, that's this is sort of interesting anecdote. But I, I would like to come back to that comment you mentioned by um, Constantine Sanders, where he talked about analytic philosophy, taking the English language for granted. And it's, uh, it's really interesting because there's some work being done on that at the moment. The first one that comes to, to mind is the work of contemporary French thinker called Barbara Cassan. But she talks about how analytic philosophy presents itself as a philosophy that takes place in an ordinary language, in a common language, in a language of common sense. And she makes the point that even by doing that, you're adopting a particular style and a particular ideal of how philosophy should be conducted. And that's already a philosophical choice. So it's not neutral in any way. But it also is saying that this is how philosophy should be done. The philosophy should always be in English. So it's, it's quite a strange position to take. And she has this great line where she says, the presumption is that any word, the meaning of any word is transparent for everybody. 
So when we're talking about what Socrates said more than 2000 years ago, the meaning is exactly the same as it was for Socrates, as it is for my colleague in Oxford, as it is for me over here in France. It's a clearly transparent meaning, which is a kind of it is just it's just a sort of nonsensical position, I think, to have. It reminds me of another interesting moment for me, at least in the history of philosophy. One of my favorite philosophers is the virtue ethicist Alistair McIntyre, and he wrote an interesting book called Whose Justice, Which Rationality? And in that book, he talks about translation. And, and McIntyre is a, a strange analytic philosopher because his background was in sociology, if I remember correctly. He was a committed Christian at one point, I think Catholic to begin with. I might be wrong on that. Then he became an atheist Marxist. Then he moved back to Christianity. And he kind of goes, it's interesting because he clearly recognizes moments when he was wrong in the past, and he'll say so. So he uh, didn't like uh, Nietzsche at all. He has a famous chapter in a book called uh, After Virtue, where it's Nietzsche, or Aristotle and Nietzsche, and he sides with Aristotle, of course. But later on in Whose Justice, Which Rationality, he comes back and says, look, I got Nietzsche wrong in this capacity. But he's the reason why I say it's because he kind of dismisses a lot of that's related to existentialism under a broad banner. So hermeneutics, the philosophy of translation might be um, under that banner for McIntyre. But he's a very hermeneutical philosopher in the way in which he looks at history and how um, we tend to miss things, uh, not only when looking at history, but how we miss things in our own moment, because we just assume things are clear or transparent, as you're saying. And so there's this really interesting passage in his book where he talks about the translation from the uh, epic Greek poem, the Iliad, where Achilles undergoes this moment of rage because the king uh, Agamemnon takes his basically his prize in war, which is the slave girl Briseis. And of course, as the king, the uh, Agamemnon has the right to do this, but it's not normally done. And so Homer, the author of the poet, as we know him, tries to describe, the, or not tries, but describes this moment in which Achilles is caught between two things, uh, whether to strike down Agamemnon or just to, to let it go. And McIntyre notes that if we look at different English translation of the Greek epic poem, we what we get is the translator trying to understand what is at odds with Achilles. And so he notes that if you look at, I think I'm going to get this wrong, but if you no, look at... Um, uh, Homer's translation of Chapman, you get, I'm going to get this really wrong because it's been such a long time since I taught. I used to teach this every year as an example, but I think it's uh, 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 between rival thoughts. So Achilles, should I, should I kill Ag Agamemnon, strike him down, or should I not? And then when you look at Alexander Pope's translation, which is, I think, a couple centuries later, it's between the thought of not doing so and then the passion that he's enraged by Agamemnon's decision. So it's a, it's a rivalry between a thought and a passion, whereas before it was two thoughts. And then McIntyre looks at a more ambiguous modern translation by Robert Fitzgerald, where Fitzgerald tries to describe it in terms of conflicting psychological states, whatever that means. I've not looked at the Fitzgerald translation to confirm this, but I thought it was interesting. And McIntyre's whole point is there's not a bad translation, as you were saying, and there's not, or there's not a correct translation and a wrong translation, as you said in the introduction. But there is there's a there's a better or worse translation depending on the context you look at. And so McIntyre makes the point that what we see here at one level are three translators expressing how they understand that kind of moral dilemma. How would that make sense to the reader? Well, for one, it's going to be two rival thoughts. Another, it's going to be a thought and a passion clashing. And for 
another, it's going to be maybe it describes our psychological mess in modernity today, but conflicting psychological states or mental states, whatever that might be. What's interesting about those examples you've given about the translation of the Iliad that McIntyre comments on is how they reflect the moments in which they're translated. So the Chapman translation between rival thoughts, and then we get into Pope, and obviously we have that opposition that's happening around that time between sort of super rationality and emotions or connected to nature. So you get the, the choices framed between rational thought and passionate emotion. And then in the Fitzgerald translation, the more contemporary one, you get this conflicting psychological states. But the words in the Homer text remain the same. And so I think it's really interesting to consider why translations need to be redone. And, and part of the reason is that they, they must reflect the time in which they're for in a way that te other texts don't have to. But I think what's interesting there is to ask, is that because we know that they are translations and so we need them to be more contemporary? Or is it because there is something in the original that we are happy to leave as it is? So all sorts of examples, you can look at various French translations of Shakespeare. Why do we need them? But I wonder if the original is totally lost, do we then not retranslate the only remaining translation we have? Do we then allow that to become an original? So there's something about, I think in any case, there is something about knowing that a text is a translation that makes us demand different things of it. I think that's really interesting to consider why that is or, or why that might be. For you, does that awareness that you are dealing with a translated text or a translated version of an original create a sense of humility or uncertainty or how I'm thinking about problems that we face in a in the everyday sense of social political conflict and you know the obvious example that's going to come to mind is is conflict over religious meaning um, what one truly believes in or what Charles Taylor would call strong evaluations that might be based upon understanding the text or hey we're in the U.S. let's take the U.S. Constitution which is a huge issue and how people interpret it and a lot of people just think there is a literal meaning we can easily access. And you were just talking about the transparency of language a moment ago, where whatever um, the First Amendment might have meant for our forefathers is going to be the same as it means for us today. And people don't see, I guess we're dealing with a lot of things here. Sorry to touch on all these issues, but this is um, for audience members. This is how, I guess, how big the issue of translation is, because translation is not just translating one natural language like English into another natural language like Japanese, but it's actually trying to interpret your own language given its different historical cultural manifestations, those kinds of things. So are there any kind of life lessons you've learned that translate directly into practical everyday existence in terms of knowing about your dealing with the translation? I think the example of the constitution is, is really interesting because there is this assumption. So I think a constitution has to be taken as a different text to something like Homer's Iliad or, or a Shakespeare play, because a constitution, you know, it part of what it's it's doing is it's not just writing the rules for a nation; it is at the same time bringing the nation into existence. And so, 
a constitution, I think, almost, I, I don't want to make an absolute statement, but almost more than any other text has to be a, a living text. It has to be a, a, a text that breathes the air of modernity. And we get similar issues. You mentioned the Bible and literal meanings of the Bible. And you get similar things, I think, with religious text. But it, we'll stick to a constitution. A constitution has to reflect the people that it is bringing together to make a nation. And I think if we get stuck with the literalness, then we are saying that the nation, whether that's the US or it's Ireland or it's Japan, then the nation is stuck at that moment. And that's going to be a real problem because then you're condemning everybody to do a set of values that are no longer current or, or relevant, or at least a set of values that need to be reassessed. And so constitutional interpretation is key, not just for making sort of dry legal arguments, but it's really key for keeping the nation alive as, as a nation of people who have chosen to come together. It's interesting, so in, in Ireland, where I'm, I'm based, we've had a series of constitutional changes over the last number of years, and a number of them have come from uh, citizens' assemblies. And they're extraordinarily interesting phenomena. And one of my colleagues at University College Dublin in politics, David Farrell, has done a lot of interesting work on this. And how they work is they uh, present an aspect of a constitution to a representative group of people from the country. So the, the group has to be representative. So it has to reflect ethnic diversity, gender diversity, economic diversity, educational, all of those things. And you present an issue that is in the constitution. So you present as a starting point what the constitution says about any given issue. One of the most famous recent ones in Ireland uh, was around abortion. So abortion was illegal in Ireland up until very recently. And so you start from this constitutional premise. And then from there, you look at, well, what might that mean in contemporary parlance? What are experts saying about this legally, but also in the case of abortion medically, in terms of social justice, and so on and so forth. And you present, you know, it's a lot of work. People who are on the Citizens Assembly work really, really hard. And then you say, okay, should we change it? Should we change this constitution? And then the Assembly make a recommendation. Yes, we should change it to, in this case, for example, allow abortion or make abortion legal in Ireland. And then it gets put to a referendum. So Ireland is a country where we, we have a lot of referenda because we can't change the constitution unless we have a referendum. And it's remarkable. And there's, there are other instances of citizens assembly in Canada, I think also in Finland, a number of other countries. It's remarkable how often the recommendation of the assembly a lot of the work that's being done there is interpretative, translatory work where you're interpreting not just the words of the constitution, but you're also, in a sense, translating the meaning and the value into the present day. So it's not just translating, it's never just about taking some sort of core meaning out of a text and putting it in, in different language. It's also about reinterpreting and reimagining the signification in the in in that broader sense of these words in 
you know, historically different or socially different situations. I was thinking with the U.S., there's the right to bear arms issue, which is, of course, famous. And a lot of non-Americans laugh at the status of that amendment and how it plays in the U.S., not laugh at what the violence that goes on, but laugh that Americans are so hung up on this idea in a certain sense. And I have my own thoughts on it. You know, it's probably related to the myth of, of the West um, that's so prominent in the U.S. And also, I think there's a lot of things with individual, the, the idea of self-sufficiency, I think, is very key in the, in the American imagination, for, for better, for worse. Obviously, it's good to be self-sufficient or mostly, but whether or not you can be entirely self-sufficient is another question. But I often joke that, you know, if you are literalist about that, that right to bear arms, then you should, to be consistent with the constitution, you should be given muskets in, you know, <laughs> not modern weaponry, uh, because that's what the forefathers understood as, as arms. So muskets and knives and hatchets, I guess, kind of thing. But it's interesting to understand language as something that's living. And I don't know to what extent you actually think that we understand that fully or to go back again to the idea that we take language for granted, I, I just wonder how you might contrast the idea, what's behind the notion of language is living versus maybe the idea that language is simply just a tool or technology for communication, that it's something that we manipulate, that we create, whereas the idea that language is living, it may be a human creation, or uh, but that it's living also means that it changes us. It has its kind of, I don't know this if this goes too far, it kind of has its own agency that works on us. Language as living, I think that's that's so important. And I think you're right. I think most of the time we go about the world not really thinking about language. It's and it's not necessarily that meaning is transparent to us, but language is or our use of language is transparent to us in the way that often the use of our body can be transparent to us. We don't think about it. We we find ourselves already doing things. And I think we find ourselves already using language. Heidegger has this wonderful and very famous line where he says language is the house of being in it, the human dwells. And I think that's true in a way that we often pass over. The idea of language as a tool is really interesting because I don't think that that's the case. I don't think, or at least if we say that language is a tool, then we have to say that our body is our, is a tool. I think language is part of, of who we are. It's part of what it means to be a human. And I mean language in the broadest possible sense. This desire to communicate and to understand the world through our interactions with it in ways that we can abstract and then think about in, in different situations. I think that's really a key part of the human experience. So does language have its own agency? That I'm not sure. So we might want to think about it in terms of this very famous distinction in the history of philosophy that you'll be, and maybe some of your listeners are very familiar with, from the uh, Swiss linguist, Ferdinand de Saussure, um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And he makes a, a distinction between langue and parole, or between language as a structure and speech, as in the use of language or individual uses of language. And so we might want to think about language as being this overriding structure that we are, we sort of 
fall into by virtue of the accident of our own birth. My first language is English. Somebody else's might be Chinese. Somebody else's might be Russian. But the structure is already there. And so we discover who we are within that structure. But, and here I think Derrida's criticism of structuralism is really important, the structure has to move, right? There has to be some flexibility where he says some play involved. Because if the structure was just rigid, then both our thinking and our language itself would remain stagnant. And of course it doesn't. It's constantly changing. And so there is this tension between language as an overriding structure that precedes us and language as a part of who we are that reflects who we are and therefore reflects our particularity and individuality and hence is unique. And so you get this tension at play that leads to change. I think it's really important to recognize how language allows us to think certain things that without naming things, we cannot address them. Right? It's, and it's one of the things I think philosophy does best, is it gives us names for phenomena that we encounter such that we can identify them or simply become aware of them. And we see that with all sorts of social movements across history. Once we start naming things, we can we can start manipulating them or changing them. But until they're named or until they're spoken about, they remain hidden. And they can, you know, social injustices, uh, for example, can be things that we are aware of, but struggle to deal with precisely because we struggle to articulate them. And once we articulate them, then we can start. It's not even as as grand as introducing legislation it can even be just as simple as noticing these things happen. And there are all sorts of examples of this, you know, terms like microaggressions or implicit bias or hermeneutic injustice or all of these things uh, allow us to think about things differently and, and make social change. But I think language is at the heart of how we do that, not as an outside tool, but as a manifestation of our very existence. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com, your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients.
In this bold new book, The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high-tech's best-known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in Real Life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.the letter H, the letter I, the letter N, the letter R, the letter L.org. That's www.hinrl.org. Perhaps an instance of an hermeneutical justice to which we can all relate is this idea of bureaucratic language. So something that is expressed bureaucratically, institutionally in one's own native language, and yet the complete incapacity to be able to understand what's being required of you in order to get something done at a social institutional level. So if you, for example, are in need of medical care and you're asked to fill out this form, usually it's in bureaucratic legalese language. And uh, maybe there are certain things, uh, criteria you have to meet in order to qualify for a certain level of medical care. And yet, if you don't understand that bureaucratic language, you're going to fill out that form either incorrectly or not to the extent which is required by whoever's in charge of vetting that application to determine whether or not you should have access to this kind of medical care. So you see that there's just a whole group of people from a socioeconomic, ethnic background who are already disadvantaged by the way in which that kind of bureaucratic language is structured. I don't know if you would agree that's the right way to use the word structure in that sense that Saussure was talking about. That creates a kind of identity, a negative identity with one's own society, uh, not just in terms of one's own lack of confidence in oneself or well, the, the reduction of well-being, but also it drives a wedge between you as a citizen or a person and the surrounding the, the environment, the community, the institution, the nation to which you belong, ideally. So I don't know why I'm, I'm thinking about that, but it just seems like there's an instance for me where the structure of a certain kind of language, i.e. bureaucratic language, actually, it, it's supposed to be doing a service for you, but actually it's doing the opposite. It's, it's creating more 
um, fragmentation, more discord, more of a sense that the nation and the state is something separate from the individual, which of course is a big problem with Americans is there's always this tension between the state and the individual as if the two are in opposition to one another. So much of contemporary discourse, it is taken to be opposite. It's almost as though we have forgotten that a nation is a group of people. You know, the original meaning of nacio was a group of people, a gens, and we have forgotten that the meaning of nation is people. And so we tend to think of it as this separate thing. And I think a significant part of how that separation occurs in the imagination is through precisely what you've mentioned, the bureaucratization of the state or of access to the state that inserts and often inserts through language this gap between this the citizen and the structures of citizenship that they should have access to. And bureaucratic language is a really interesting phenomena because in those examples you've mentioned, for example, filling out a, a medical care form, or it might be, for example, filling out a uh, registration for state support for education or something. Those forms in particular are meant to envelop the citizen. They're meant to welcome the citizen into these kind of administrative outlets of the state, right? What they're meant to do is say to the citizen, oh, yes, we can help you with this. We, the state, right? You're part of the state. Here is how you can unlock these certain things that belong to you. But actually what what that sort of language often does is it serves the state and serves very particular interests of the state that are invariably related to very particular interests of a small group of individuals. Whether intentionally or not, they reflect a, a, a sort of power of keeping people away from things that might empower them, access to healthcare, access to education, access to housing. And I think it's probably unintentional, but it's bizarre how often people have these conversations. Oh my God, did you fill out that medical care form? Oh my goodness, I didn't know what they meant on page 32 of the visa application form. Do you know what that means? It's bizarre how there is a whole industry around, for example, immigration control, where you have to, you actually have to go, imagine you have to go to a solicitor or a lawyer and ask them to to help you fill out a form. Not because you don't understand the language per se, but because you don't understand how this is going to impact on your life. And so you need professional help to fill out a form that really should just say, what is your name? And why do you need this or, or why do you need access to this thing that belongs to you? And it's curious that at no point is there a conversation around, well, let's change the forms. People should not need help to access things that belong to them. If these things are features of the state, then they belong to citizens and they should be accessible. But of course, I understand in the US, access to healthcare is uh, policed by the insurance industry and all the complications of that. So it's slightly different. But even in places where you have free healthcare, there is often a lot of bureaucracy that makes it difficult to access it. So it's it's interesting how 
that sort of language, bureaucratic language, usually operates to serve the institution rather than to serve what the institution is there to serve, you know, or who the institution is there to serve. I'm not a post-structuralist, but well, I, get, I don't know how hermeneutics might count as post-structuralism. Some, some people do think it, it does count. Some people don't think it counts. But in post-structuralism, as you'll know, there's this idea of iteration. And um, for audience members who don't know, and correct me, Lisa, if, I'm, if I get this wrong, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. But one of the general notions of iteration is when you have this structure of language that we've been talking about, there are certain terms and concepts that mean specific things. And because of the way in which they're significant within a particular structure of language, uh, it tends to reproduce certain relationships or perceptions or biases uh, because of that. And I was thinking in particular, uh, when you mentioned the insurance industry and its dominance in the healthcare industry in the United States, and this is, I'm gonna have to remind myself not to go on a rant here. So if I end up foaming at the mouth and screaming, let me know. If I, if I got this notion of iteration correct, what I would say is there you have a, a good example of it, because I think for the majority of Americans, they genuinely, maybe not the majority, but maybe a significant portion of Americans, they genuinely cannot think about uh, the health industry in the United States, except as something that insurance should provide. And not just a national insurance that forget that that's, you know, that's the, the, the insurance and national insurance, I think for a lot of Americans are two mutually exclusive terms. You just, you can't put national and insurance together because the way in which uh, insurance gets iterated within its own structure that we inhabit as Americans is it's a private entity. And the only way insurance can be functional is for a private entity to provide it. And that means they have to make profit off it. So it's okay we pay these high premiums. It's okay if we choose a lower uh, copay, as it's called, and not really understand we're gambling with their health. So I may choose to pay a $5,000 copay deductible just because maybe I'm 23 or 30, I got my first job and I'm relatively happy. So why worry about it? But so you, you get these odd things and having lived in Britain for so many, you know, for since 2004 to 2019, that way of talking about the structure of language entirely changed. So it took maybe 10 years in Britain for me to stop thinking about insurance as something I'm going to have to pay for if I go. And maybe I shouldn't go just because I have this illness. Instead, it's, look, I have this illness. I'm going to go. And it's a good thing to, to be able to have that kind of resource. And I, so it's just a strange thing in which this, the structure of language has these imaginative reproductive effects. And I really wonder ways in which we can help create a pause to that structure to, as you said, to um, to try and get it to um, loosen up, to to see that the structure itself needs some kind of play within it. Do you have any philosophical or even practical ideas or advice about how to get that to loosen up? With that example, you mentioned what the word insurance means in the United States and what it means in the UK, or and it would be almost identical, I think, in in Ireland. And they're just they're totally different things from what I, I can from what I can gather. Do you mean how do you get something like that where you have this sort of ingrained, you know, as you say, iteration through repetition, it it narrows, it it sort of narrows its its laser beam towards something very confined, a very confined sort of meaning. So as you say in the US, when you say health insurance, it has to mean through this like private 
corporation? And how do you get that to change? I'm not sure because and this is something I think that's interesting in contemporary philosophy of translation, at, at least in the work of people like Emily Apter, uh, Barbara Kassan, um, Michael Lezra, this part of the work they do is to show that when you have a word, it never operates by itself. It operates like almost like a node in a big web. So when you translate one word interlingually between languages, you have to think about how you're translating the whole web of associated words. And so insurance is a, is a good point within a language. So when you take ins insurance in the US context, it's caught up with a lot of what you spoke about before, or at least it seems to be from, from my perspective, it seems to me to be caught up with this idea of self-sufficiency, of making one's own place in the world. And so if I'm sick, it's my responsibility to, to make sure that I have made provision for that eventuality. And so it actually reflects a certain understanding of what the state is there for and the state is there for me to be able to do whatever it is I want to do. So you get this kind of very almost like a, a Nozick night watchman sort of idea of what the state is. In the European context, it's totally different. So insurance is at the sort of web that's associated with that. I think it almost immediately conjures, as you mentioned, national insurance. And then the idea leads into the idea of the nation being there to support its citizens, that one of the reasons we make something like a nation is because it's mutually beneficial. And there is, I think, more of a sense in that context that the nation is about allowing its citizens to flourish and providing certain basic things such that they can do so. Even just with this small word, you start to see how language shapes a broader worldview that I think can only be brought into relief when it encounters something else. And this, this is why I think something like translation becomes this very interesting model for intersubjective or indeed intercultural relations. So I think it's interesting you say that when you went to the UK, it, you know, it almost took like 10 years to realize it's okay, I can go to the hospital. I don't need to be paying an extortionate amount to a private insurance company on top of my taxes. That it's only, it's only from a distance that you can see what's really familiar. We need to get uh, some space in order to see what we take for granted. And I think that's where interlingual translation, because it's always intercultural, gives us a way to, to do that, that, that makes us sort of think, oh, I never even, never even thought about that. I never even thought that, that this should be something I just get, or this should be a benefit of living here or being part of this nation. I think, so one of the things that I think is dangerous is a super isolated model, um, because then you never get that jarring sort of distinct that gives you another perspective on something. It would be great if we could have citizen exchange where citizens have to go live a certain amount of time in other countries. And um, I know it'd be hard to work out economically, but it would be an interesting way to 
change the way in which people think about themselves and other people. I, I want to come on to this idea that uh, Jacques Derrida talks about. He mentions in, in one capacity he or one role, he mentions the idea of the unforgivable, which I suppose would be a different podcast. But of course, in the context of interpretation, he mentions the untranslatable, that which cannot be translated. And it's an interesting situation, I guess, where you could see something, one particular thing is being untranslatable, or you could be a little bit more global in your view about this and think that nothing really is translatable. I don't know how you could sustain that philosophically because you have to think about the ideas of how that would be, and that's kind of a translation. But perhaps you're always missing the mark in some way. Can you say more about this idea of the untranslatable and what it meant for Jacques Derrida? It's one of my favorite things to talk about, so <laughs> I'm quite happy to, to say more about it. I think it's one of those things in Derrida's work, and you mentioned the unforgivable, that operates along similar Uh, although not identical, along similar uh, lines. And it's one of those things that's often really misunderstood in Derrida's work. So he has this line in a a paper that he gave to a translator's association where he says, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, "I, I don't believe anything is translatable. I don't believe anything is untranslatable. And later in that paper, he says he thinks everything is translatable and everything is untranslatable. And of course, these sorts of phrases are precisely the phrases that often get Derrida into trouble because people think he's sort of engaged in a little bit of sophistry rather than philosophy. But I think the key to understanding those kind of statements is to realize that for Derrida, there is a sort of double temporality at play in language and in existence. We tend to think that our experience of time runs along straight lines, that uh, one thing happens after the other, and everything that's happened in the past is somehow recuperable through memory. You know, I can go back and I can represent it. But one of the things Derrida is really interested in is how that passage of time requires something to be lost or something that can't be recuperated, which is the passage of time itself. And he's really influenced here by the work of Levinas, I think, Emmanuel Levinas, another 20th century French, well, Lithuanian uh, French thinker. And Levinas talks about how we are in this double time. And he says, this other time that we can't recuperate We notice that it's happened when we, for example, look in the mirror and realize we look a lot older. You can't recuperate that that passage of time that constitutes aging. You see it, you see the wrinkles in your face or the gray hairs, but you you don't really experience it in that same chronological sense. And so Levinas says we're in two times. And... I think that's really what Derrida is getting at with this idea of the untranslatable. Everything is translatable, but ultimately, I, you know, we can sit down with the language and we can muddle our way through. But also it is untranslatable because it is unique and specific and of its time. And so you, you can't get that back. So if I translate Shakespeare into, I don't know, contemporary Portuguese. What I can't translate 
is the passage of time between that Shakespeare text and now. What I can't translate are certain, I mean, Derrida is very keen on words that have multiple meanings at play. I can't translate those double meanings. I, I have to make a decision. And there are all sorts of words that throw this question up. And the point here is that we fall into the trap of self-assurance when we think only in terms of the translatable. So when we think like, oh, well, I'll do this translation and yeah, sure, I could go another way. Uh, it might go this way. It might go that way. But I sure have to make a decision and whatever I come up with, that's going to be good enough. For Derrida, that's really problematic because you're missing what is untranslatable. You're missing the fact that it's it's also totally different and you, you're missing something specific about the text you're working with. You have to miss it because you're making a translation, but it's important to realize that you know, that we are in these two times. It's important to realize that the text is both translatable and untranslatable at the same time. So one of the things that I'm really interested in doing in, in my work is using that as a way of thinking our relationships with each other. There's a real drive, I think, at the moment in our political situations or social situations to think of everything in terms of being understandable or accessible or being available to us in some way. You know, we can talk and we can understand each other and you can tell me something about who you are. I can tell you something about who I am. But there's something about you that I cannot know, right? With, you know, and at its most basic, I can't know what it is like to be you. But more interestingly, who you are remain slightly enigmatic and listing, say, your qualities or facts about your existence isn't really going to bring that into play. And that sort of untranslatable in individuals is what I think is worth responding to when we're talking about ethics or ethical interactions. And I think it's ethical to recognize that there are parts of other people that we don't understand. And so you have this idea of untranslatable and translatable occurring together, but the danger is to operate only with the model of translatability because then you start thinking, what I can't access is not important or what I can't translate is not important. But in fact, maybe that's the most important thing. It's the most ethically important thing in any case. That was both one of the clearest expositions of Derrida I've heard, and uh, it was excellent for me to see how the topic of translation relates so fundamentally to ethical relations, um, which I think most of our listeners probably had not considered the relationship between translation and, and ethics and how we, how we treat others and how we treat ourselves. We've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests two questions. And so, Lisa, the first question is, has there been any one philosophy or philosopher that has been central and influential to your work and the way you have lived your life? I would have to say it's the work of Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas works in the tradition of phenomenology. So for those who are not familiar, it's a, a method and a school of thought in the history of philosophy. But one of the key tenets of that school is that philosophy should begin by describing our lived experience. And one of the things that Levinas does, and there are lots of problems with his work, but it had a really profound impact on me, 
one of the things that Levinas does is he describes what happens when you really see another person. And he says this kind of ambiguous line where he says the other is invisible. And his point is that when you really see someone, when you really engage with them, they become invisible, right? You've, you've, you forget or you don't really see things like gender or religion or sexuality. You see something, he says it's infinite, right? It's tied to this idea of the untranslatable. You see something you can't quite grasp. And that's the moment, he says, that reveals our existence as ethical. And I think why it had such a profound impact on me was because it's recognizable. It's that moment, you know, you can walk down the same street a hundred times a week and see somebody looking for change and you walk by because you're rushing or maybe you throw some money into the bowl, but you, you keep going. And then for some reason, one day you, you see them and it's, so disruptive and you think how can this person what has happened in our world that this person is sitting on the street with nowhere to live and Levinas says it's it's almost like it's and it's related to this diachronic non-recuperable time it's a split second it's over before you can even think about it but for that split second you feel obliged to take your coat off and give it to this person and bring them home and Levinas says that That's the moment that makes all of our existence possible because without it, we would have destroyed each other. And often we do destroy each other because we forget that moment, but that it's key to what it means to be a human being. So I think it had a profound impact on me because like the best philosophy, I I recognized it, but I had never had the words or the language to talk about it. Lisa, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? No. <laughs> I, 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 wish, I wish I did, but I, I would, yeah, I, I, I could not presume to give anything like words of wisdom. I can't think of anything at all, I'm afraid. I think you're our first guest on the podcast to do this. So that's uh, that's unique in itself and uh, non-recuperable. So you've had a lot of words of wisdom in discussing about the ethical relationships that emerge or involved in translation. So thank you for that. And I'd like to thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. It's been an absolute pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me. If you would like to know more about Lisa's research and publications, please visit her page on the University of College Dublin website. As always, you can check out the podcast blurb for more information, including topics related to this episode and our sponsors. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Philosophy to You, Transitioning Your Life, Hermeneutics in Real Life, and The Infinite Staircase. If you would like to become a sponsor, please get in touch with us via the philosophytoyou.com website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast and help spread the word. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.